All right, Action Alerts Plus subscribers and AAP podcast listeners, it's Chris Versace here, and I'm so happy to invite yet another member of the AAP team onto the AAP podcast. I'm, of course, talking about one, Sarge Guilfoyle. Now, I know you guys know who Sarge is. I'm sure you see his comments in the Morning Recon every day. I know you're reading it because I read it, but you can also find his thoughts every day over at Real Money and various other places at thestreet.com. And you've probably seen him on a number of different uh, TV and news programs. You know, this is why I'm so excited to have Sarge in. He's, again, an integral part of the AAP team. Sarge, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Chris, and thank you, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Sarge, what what most people don't know, I think, or at least most AA people don't know, is that you and I have a little bit of a history together because we co-managed Stocks Under 10 for a period of time, and it was was really kind of fun. I, I did like that. Uh, working in that portfolio. I, I know you did a lot, you have done and continue to do a lot of great work in identifying uh, those particular areas. So we, we, we're a little familiar with each other and, and in some respects where our, our styles are similar, but they're also slightly different as well. So um, before we get started, you know, you've got the background that I don't have. You're on the floor of the stock exchange. You were an economist. I was just a lowly analyst and thematic guy. But but tell the audience a little bit about your uh, history and how it enables you to do what you do today. Well, I, I like to refer to myself, whereas you are more of a fundamental trader. Bob Lang is more of a technical trader. I like to refer to myself as a hybrid because I rely on the fundamentals to tell me which way the bus is going to move. I rely mm-hmm. on technicals to tell me where the bus stops are. And I rely on economics to set up, for the most part, the environment. So I, I rely on all three disciplines I consider essential to my style of trading. So, you know, I, I layered in this thematic approach as well. But, but since we're talking about you, um, what do you lead with? Do you lead with the technicals or do you lead with the fundamentals? Uh, it, it depends. I do a multitude of types of investing and trading. If I'm trading for the day, if I'm just trying to make a couple hundred bucks before the the bell rings and goes off, uh, I don't look at fundamentals at all. In fact, I'm not married to the stock. I don't really care what stock it is. I just care that it's moving and it has a chart. Uh, if I'm investing or writing an article for investors, uh, much what's most important to me is fundamentals. I believe in, in uh, understanding cash flows, understanding the balance sheet, uh, understanding what the company is trying to do, what management is trying to do, See if, see what no analysts, no certain analysts that you have come to trust, because a lot of them are full of it. We both know that. But a lot of them, well, we do. Uh, but you know, know the ones that have been right for you over a number of years and follow them. So, you know, if, they're in, if, if they cover the, the sector that the stock's in, see what they think and, and try to roll that all into an opinion. And, uh, you know, but I will still use technicals in order to set my target price, my panic point, my pivot, pivot point, all those types of trading uh, levels, I guess you, you would call it. But uh, but whether I want to be in the name or not, that's going to be a fundamental decision. Okay. So for folks who aren't as familiar with you, you, you kind of rattled off two things that I want to talk about. Panic point, pivot point. What's the difference? Well, a pivot point is where, for me, I don't know if I use the same language as everyone else, but this is the way it was taught to me way back when, So, and I've always used it. The pivot is the point where a stock can either catapult further in the direction it's moving or find resistance or support and start moving the other way. So a pivot can work for you or against you, depending on which side of the, of the 
market you're on. Your target price is where you think based on a move past pivot, the stock might go based on mm -hmm. past experience, based on sector performance, based on the environment. Like during the bull market, I don't think I ever set a target price less than 20% higher. Lately, I don't think I've set a target price less than 15% higher, more than 15% higher because we're in a different environment. Right. Uh, and panic point for me, it's always 8%. I am unwilling to take more than an 8% loss on any position ever. So, okay, so that, that's where we differ a little bit, right? In the sense that we will use weakness to build out our position. And it, and it served us at times very well. At other times, we've had to work our way out of positions. What, what lead has led you to hard, fast 8%? Uh, I, just, I just went with it. I think I read something. I think O'Neill wrote it first. And I kind of copied him off that one. And I just stuck with it my whole career. Now, that doesn't mean I can't buy on weakness. I do that plenty. Uh, when I go in, when I enter into a position, a long position, because usually short positions, I'm not too good at layering in. But when I'm getting involved in a long position, I usually start off, with, I have an idea of how much money or, or how many shares I'm willing to buy, how much money I'm willing to spend. Right. And I, I usually start off with about an eighth of that. That's my entry. Okay. And if, if the stock keeps coming in my way, well, if it actually would be against me at that point, but if it keeps coming in, I will end up with a full position. If it turns at some point, and it's less than say a half a position, then at that point, I probably declare the stock a trade. If it's going my way, but I never got enough, as many shares as I had intended to, it's gonna be a trade. If I do build a full position, well, now we're married and now we're gonna play ball for a while in these names. You know, so so let, let, let's, let's just try and clarify this. So the 8% rule goes into effect when? Is it after a half position, after a full position? It's after I decide that I've had enough. So if the, if the, so it's just, so it is definitely objective. Uh, if if I have a full position, it's firm. But if okay. I'm building a position and it turn, and the stock goes the right way before I built up the share position I had intended to originally, then it's eight percent from that net basis. But it moves up. It's not it's Got not it. always down there at eight percent. If you're in say Lockheed Martin and the stock runs 150 points while you're long it, it's a trailing eight percent. Right. And so it's or. So it's always going to be, you know, you're, so, so you will lock in a profit. You're not going to wait for it to lose all its value. Okay. Okay. So um, talk to me about the the opportunities you see in the market, because right right before we hit record, you had said, but boy, this is kind of like a, a, a market of indecision. Uh, I think the words you used is you're kind of swimming in some directions. Um, you know, it's not easy. There's a lot of challenges to it, a lot of potential head fakes. Some say we're in a trading range. There's concerns about the speed of the economy, what the Fed's going to do. Uh, I'm not as concerned about the debt ceiling, but some people are concerned about that. What What do you make of all of this? Well, I think we're certainly in a tough environment to make decisions in. Uh, we are towards the higher end of that range. I think if they solve this debt ceiling headline situation rather painlessly, I think we will get a, a short-term pop in the market. We might go through the top of the range. Uh, longer term, I think that the economy does go into or come very close to recession. I, I had called for a recession sort towards the end of first quarter, start of second quarter. So it's already late on my clock. Mm -hmm. So I might, mm -hmm. so I'm admitting I might be wrong about a recession, but I don't think I'm going to be wrong by by all that much. I think we're going to come very close to a recession, and that will, of course, drag on earnings. That will drag on credit. That will drag on demand for credit. There are a lot of economic reasons that well, the economy could slow for a lengthy period of time. Uh, so I I don't expect the market to move exponentially higher as we 
saw between 2008 and 2022 X the pandemic. So, you know, I, I think your view is really relative similar to mine, which is not so different from a lot of other folks over there. And when I was talking with Todd Campbell from Street Smarts last week, I, I, I posed a, a question to him and it went kind of like this. What do you think it would take to break us out of that 4,200 range on the S&P 500 or, or, conver or let, let's add a B question for you, Sarge. Um, what do you think it will take to confirm the notion that we may not see a recession? Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, we'll have to see unemployment stay as strong as it has been. Uh, we'll have to see wage growth stay as strong as it has been. I, I was completely surprised by that last. Uh, uh, Yo, you and everybody I, else. I, mean, I, I Did you see the NFIB small business survey for April yeah, out this morning? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't. I could not believe what it said on the uh, employment front, with the number of folks looking to still create more jobs. I was really surprised. Yeah. So maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe other economists are wrong on this. So I mean, you you always have to be willing to adjust. You can't be like these kids at the Fed that, like, you know, they make believe they were never wrong, and and they probably batten less than two fifty. I mean, so <laughs> I mean, that's, most of them. That's, Thank goodness for this new guy, Austin Goolsby, over in Chicago, because you know what? I never liked him when he was political, but now he's not really political. He's just economics. And, and you know, uh, what? He's, he's speaking common sense. He, he is. He is. But I, I have a little bit of concern. Ho hopefully I'm proven wrong. But he seems to me as someone who wants to mug for the camera too much. And I and bit, I yes. Definitely. And I, I don't I don't really like that in, in my Fed officials. Right. Get out, give your speech, talk the talk, support the playbook, talk the data. Fine. But I don't want to see your face plastered all over TV giving interviews. I just don't like that. Yeah, well, I don't like that all that much either. I mean, and although we've seen plenty of that from the Hawks, I mean, Loretta Mester, who has been hawkish since I've known her, um, she's and she's a great economist, but she's you gotta know she's a perma, perma hawk. So, I mean, through this whole cycle, I, we've seen her on TV more than we ever saw her. She was always one of the choir folks at the Fed. And I think the last six or eight months, we've seen so much of her as they've been, as, yeah. as, this, as we've come to a point where so many people are trying to price in a pause or a pivot. And so they do put the people out there that make the most noise at the time they want the noise made. Do you, well, do you think it's the type of noise, too, that they want made? Well, the the networks, the financial news networks, I think they always no have no to no no. I I I was thinking I I'm I'm not that cynical. I, I was thinking oh, more I along the lines of of Powell knowing the message that needs to be reiterated, kind of nudges the more hawkish people out when he has to. I think I don't know if he nudges them out there. I think they get they maybe he does. I I just don't see him as that kind of leader. I think maybe they try to get themselves out there when they're trying to impact sentiment or policy. And, and so I think, I mean, she's really, she's getting close to being the last hawk, right? Because uh, Esther George is gone now. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, she's the last true hawk. But, uh, you know, but, but they're all, let's face it, the whole FOMC has been, you know, even, you know, even Neil Cash Carey, who was, you know, a flag waving dove all these years, you know, they all went to the hawkish side. Yes. So now, they're, now they're trying to pull them back to the center a little bit. And I guess we'll pause. We probably will pause. We still have six and a half, six to nine months worth of lag effect in front of us mm -hmm, that we mm -hmm. don't know how that's going to play out. So the right, in my opinion, the right thing to do is to pause at this point, see if they see how quickly this lag effect comes on. And uh, and I, I don't think they should pivot yet. I'm not I'm not a true dove, 
I think they should watch and wait. Yeah. So I, you know, I wrote some comments to the AAP subscribers about the April Sluice report that was out yesterday. And, you know, there were really two categories in there that and I'm going from memory now, so I apologize. It was like tightened slightly versus tightened considerably. <laughs> and, and it was more in the tightened slightly. And, I, and I, I walked through the timing of everything that happened with the bank failures, the other Fed um, rate hikes. My thinking is that you know, the, the July report is going to be far more enlightening in terms of uh, tighter credit than what the April one was. So I agree with you because of that. But I think the pause, the Fed isn't sorry, the Fed will pause at the upcoming June meeting, which as I look at the calendar is uh, just about, you know, 35 days away, something like that. Um, yeah, and I think they will be data dependent. However, I do not think that we're gonna see all those rate cuts that the market continues to think we might have. The, the futures market is just incredible. I mean, it's, they have, within 18 months, they have the Fed funds rate at 2.75. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's crazy. I mean, uh, inflation's never going back to the you know to where we're struggling to get up to two percent, at least not soon, at least not anytime soon. Agreed. So we, agreed. we have to live with this. It's it's a condition we have to live with. Uh, talking about that SLUs report, I, I think I I was truly surprised also that the, that the lending conditions, lending standards had not tightened had t had not tightened as much as I expected. But what did surprise me and was a little bit startling was how quickly demand is starting to erode. Mm -hmm. The demand side for for uh, CNI, that's commercial and industrial for the folks who are uninitiated uh, loans, uh, for residential loans, for commercial real estate, all every category, the demand has uh, has had dropped during the first quarter, and that loose report was before FRC went under. Also, that yes. that was only with, that only included the first batch of failures. Yeah, so you know, I kind of wonder, just speculating, how much of that? I mean, when you look at the cumulative amount that the Fed has done over the last year, it, it's done a lot. Oh, and, it's done a real lot. Yeah. Right. And and if you're a business operator, you're, you're sitting there going, OK, these are the projects I'd like to do. What's my cost of capital? What's my return on capital? Can I afford to do all of these? I might have to make some tough decisions. So I, I, I wonder how much of that is kind of what's unfolding in what you just talked about. Well, I think I think it, it matters. I mean, I just you know, I just spent some time with a real estate agent who was showing me around and uh, and, you know, she's she's seeing less she's still active it's not like her business is is going away but it's she's not over she's no longer overburdened i might yeah. say where for years she had been you know helter skelter just trying to keep up with the people that were calling her that that's the great panhandle state you're kind of referring to right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yes it is all right all right so land of palm trees all right so let's let, let's get back to uh the other question that i asked you so 4,200 on the S&P, what's it going to take, do you think, to pierce that level, not not temporarily, but more on a sustained basis? And, and what Todd Campbell said was, boy, we're going to have to see some rate cuts. What do you think? Well, I think the rate cuts will get you over that level temporarily, just like avoiding hitting the debt ceiling, uh, you know, uh, defaulting on U.S. debt will do. So I, I think that would get you past the level temporarily, but that would mean we're heading into the recession I was speaking about. And I think that ultimately that would be painful and get us back into the range or maybe well below the range. So I think the best thing for net long investors and for the economy, their economic activity in general, would be for them not to have to cut, to keep fighting inflation on the lag basis, not, not aggressively in the face of inflation, and to, to avoid this recession, Come close, but to avoid this recession, maintain a relatively strong labor market 
and move on from here. If we can average a GDP of between one and a half and two and a half percent moving on without hitting a recession, that I think would take the market off. That, that would, would that be. Would, that, that would be what everybody looks for, i.e. the Goldilocks scenario, which rarely happens. Yeah, well, actually, it happened for traders a lot over the last 15 years, right? I mean, you can make a living in this in these markets for years uh, with, you know, basically just investing and trading for yourself. You know, it created a cottage industry for guys like us. <laughs> true, true. OK, OK. So, you know, what I hear you saying is it doesn't sound like we're apt to get out of the 4,200 or move past the 4,200 on a sustained basis, at least in the near term. I, I really don't see it unless we, unless we don't default on the debt, uh, the economy stays out of recession and they don't need to cut rates because needing to cut rates while temporarily, while a trading opportunity to the long side is not really going to be an investment opportunity to the long side. Okay. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk stocks charge. Is there any particular, and I hate the word sector, that's just the way I'm built. Uh, is there any area of interest that re is really capturing you? I know you're a big guy on defense. We have Lockheed in the bullpen, but you know I, I think you're well uh, documented in this arena. Is there anything else that's starting to look interesting to you? One area that we're looking into is in automation, um, given what we're seeing in terms of uh, the non-residential non-residential construction spending data over the last few months about manufacturing facilities, but I'm concerned about a tight labor market in wages. Also seeing a lot more robotics going into um, fast food restaurants as well as AI starting to show up there. So that, that's one area that's kind of I, I'm starting to warm up to. Do you have anything that you're warming up to? Yeah, sure. I mean, you, you mentioned defense, which I think it's a, actually I think it's a good time to buy the fence because they've all come in on the uh, the headline U.S. Uh, debt ceiling news. And I think it's an opportunity because even if we do default short term and we and all kinds of mayhem breaks loose, these guys always get their money. Yep. These guys, they always produce massive free cash flow. They always have they have strong balance sheets. The, these guys perform for me anyway. You know, I am biased because I'm long all of them all the time and they and they have made me money for years. So they those firms, I think, are rock solid in terms of fundamentals. Uh, in terms of covering your tail, in case there is a recession, I like Dollar Tree. I like TJ Maxx. I'm long both. Uh, in terms of artificial intelligence, I have remained long. I did take some profits in AMD and NVIDIA a couple of weeks ago. It's probably a mistake because they're headed north again. Uh, not today, but lately. I'm still long AMD and NVIDIA both. I think they're I think they're both great plays. As far as the regional banking crisis goes, I initiated KeyBank about a month and a half ago, and I've added to it three times since. So KeyBank's becoming a real position. Um, where else are we? Uh, oh, cybersecurity. Oh, oh. I mean, so when you would talk tech, you can't talk tech or even software now without talking about cybersecurity. Oh, 100 uh, percent. It's yeah. it, it's the it's the digital equivalent of insurance. I mean, Zscaler, they blew up. They, they, that was so exciting. Yes, they were. They, I'm not long that name anymore. But I mean, I am long CrowdStrike. I am long Palo Alto. I am long Sentinel One. I think the whole group, there may be some consolidation as we move forward, because maybe there's not a need for all of them. And I think CrowdStrike and Zscaler actually are co-marketed together because they complement each other so well. A lot of a lot of corporations use both. So uh, so I think that's a spot that's just, it's a spot that I'm afraid to not be in. So even though it's overvalued by the metrics that you and I like to look at, uh, I, I have been long 
at least one or two and sometimes more cybersecurity stocks, probably going back to my early days, to the early days of cybersecurity. So we actually took a different path in AAP. We actually have a position in the cyber CIBR ETF. Um, and, and the reason for that is it's in, in some respects, this the industry reminds me of the uh, video game industry of, you know, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, where you're constantly having to figure out what's the hot new platform, who's gaining share, who's got the hot title. And, and when I look at cybersecurity, the the number of attack vectors continue to increase, right? So to me, it becomes increasingly hard over the long term to constantly, you know, figure out who is the one company that is always positioned well at the at any given time. I'd rather have a more diverse basket and kind of capture that overall rise in cybersecurity spend. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, that way, that way, you won't end up in the wrong name. Or, or two. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's be, be, because the, the the environment is evolving, you know, not every couple of years, but it, increasingly, it seems like every couple quarters, there, there there's a shift in the types of attacks, what's being attacked, how they're attacking. I, I just, you know, I like to sleep well at night and I find that I can do that with, with that type of play. But let, let me go back to defense because I, A, I agree with you. 100%. But you said something that I thought was pretty interesting. You said that these companies always get their money, right? Which we do understand. But what, what's interesting this time around, I think, may, maybe more so than in the past, is given some of the other conflicts that we're seeing, when, when you look at like Lockheed Martin or some of the others, their order backlog, you know, it, it's not, I think, as tied as it was in the past to U.S. defense spending. There's actually programs around the globe as they continue to rearm themselves, given what's going on, concerns, you know, Russia, Ukraine, what China may do with Taiwan. It, it just seems it, it's a little more diversified. Thoughts? It's very diversified. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Taiwan's buying F-16s. F-16s aren't even a modern aircraft. I mean, by by today's standards. Uh, so older Lockheed Martin products are finding buyers. Uh, NATO, every NATO country has to increase spending. I mean, it's going to be tough. It's going to be a tough fiscal environment to do so, but they all have to do it. Uh, the Middle East is always a hotbed for sales. I mean, it's almost, I hate to say it, but it's almost ripe for, uh, inter, for international players in the space to compete with the U.S. Uh, behemoths. So it, it actually almost, there is actually room for competition here where, where maybe something pops up somewhere else that becomes a key competitor to a Lockheed or to a Northrop. Or to one of those, because we we make you know our our companies make most of the really expensive fighter planes, all really expensive. Well, we mass produce really expensive tanks. Other countries make them, but they make fifteen of them. All right, we make <laughs> yeah. we make thousands yeah. of them. Submarines, nobody else is making submarines except maybe the Chinese. I mean, it's just the way it is. I I understand. I understand. So, <clears throat> Sarge, you you talk through areas of interest. What are area and it, it's interesting because w one of the areas that we've kind of leaned into is uh, spending out of Washington, which is not too dissimilar from uh, defense spending. Um, you know, infrastructure plays. We've got a few in the AAP portfolio. Are you dabbling in that area at all, or no? Uh, not specifically. I one thing I did miss when you spoke about when you mentioned giving the opportunity to bring up groups was I kind of gave up on energy and oil for the time being. Uh, I, I sold Chevron before it went under that, below my net basis. So I took a small profit in that one. I got out of Exxon at a loss. Uh, I'm only still on 
oxy, and that's basically because Warren's long oxy, but I'm not really, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really have let, let, Let's <laughs> be clear here. You're owning shares of oxy. You're not on oxy. Yeah, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> but uh, but that's the only energy stock I'm still in, really. I mean, I'm still in some of the financials, uh, Bank of America and uh, Wells Fargo, but they're, they both have turned against me of late. So I'm I'm actually on the minor side. I may have to defend Wells Fargo soon enough. I'm down 7.5% in that one. So I, I think, well, I, I don't know what your entry point on Bank of America is, but we, we in the portfolio have a position in that. And it's one that, you know, I, I think we recognize that, there, there's going to be some puts and takes, some bumps in the road as, as we go through all of this. And we're just going to, you know, our, our preferred way of doing this is picking up shares below our cost basis. And we're not, we're uh, we're about there. So we, we might do some further nibbling on that. But we're inclined to just kind of take our time. And, and the reason we went with Bank of America is, look, you know, it fallen from, I think, 38 to, what was it, uh, 27 and a half, 28 when we first started buying, um, you know, flight to quality, flight to big banks. We, we see oh, them yeah. as a beneficiary. I, I thought Bank of America, actually, I had, before all this started, I really had seen them as the rising star in the category. And I, I thought they would probably give JP Morgan a run for their money as with for the reputation of best in class or, uh, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. top dog. Uh, throughout this crisis, I guess J.P. Morgan has, and and, JP, and through its own performance, because J.P. Morgan had a great quarter, uh, J.P. Morgan has reasserted itself as the leader in the industry. But uh, but I do think of all the other large to medium-sized banks, Bank America is the one with the leadership and with the style that could compete on an almost equal level with J.P. Morgan. Yeah, the one thing that they seem to lack is the size of the investment banking on its overall business mix, like JP. But at least in this environment, uh, I don't really see a lot of no, IB business not. happening. And the funny thing is, they took you know years ago they took over Merrill Lynch, so they should have a nice investment bank. Yes, they, <laughs> they should. Must have laid they, them all off. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I, I I think they've probably done a little bit more what Morgan Stanley is doing, you know, which is leaning into you know the more stable business, which is wealth management, which is. You know, I, I think what Merrill has increasingly become known for. Did you ever think every bank on Wall Street would be a better trader than Goldman Sachs? Uh, <laughs> no, no, I did not. growing not. up, I didn't. No, 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 I didn't either. I didn't either. That's a uh, that's that's an interesting one. You, you know, it, it's funny because they were always like like when I was at Solomon over at Seven World Trade and then DLJ in Midtown. You know, it was always ooh, eighty-five broad, eighty-five broad, which is which was, I should say, Goldman's address downtown on uh, eighty-five Broad Street. So it, there was always some, you know, shock and awe about that black building that they were in. Um, but I, I think, uh, you know, the bloom is off the roses, they say. Oh yeah, they they're no they're no longer the house on Wall Street everyone wants wanted to go to or wants to work for. Actually, you were at Solomon. Solomon actually held that title for a little while. You know, when I was at Solomon, I, I got there in 92, 93, and the most impressive thing they had was on the 40th floor and on the 42nd floor, um, you could, it was a city block of a trading floor. So 40 was equities, 42 was bonds. And they had a, um, I forget the what you would call it, but on the half floor, so 41 and 43, you could actually walk out and stand over. You you could see the entire floor, and it was just amazing, absolutely amazing. Those are great days. I was a first Boston guy during those days, and then we had we had our own little run. We we, we were probably the top 
player or the top culprit, whatever you want to call it, during mm-hmm. the dot-com bubble. So we had we had our little run where we were the best at something. And man, I'll tell you, those <laughs> that was something. That was that was the uh, that was the experience of a lifetime. Now, the one thing we didn't talk about your your experience, uh, Sarge, is your time on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, right? So yeah. how how many years were you down there? Uh, I, I left and I came back a couple of times, but overall, I think I spent about 34 years on the floor. Uh, and you know, just you wow. know, from, 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 from being the lunch boy to being a senior you know, trader. So, and, and when, when were you last there in a working capacity? 2016. 2016. Okay. So about, what is that? Let me do my quick math here. Like almost seven, six, six to yeah. seven years, depending on yeah. when. That's where I started my uh, my little trading boutique, uh, Sargent H six. Um, we went off and went off on my own. But, uh, and the secret there is that's your name and badge number, right? Well, yeah, my badge number on the trading floor it was nine eight six, and it's uh, and my nickname on the floor was Sarge because I was when I showed up, I was already a veteran back in the day, and uh, and I was still in the reserves, and so the guys on the floor just started calling me Sarge all the time. There was a <laughs> A Korean War Marine who was retiring about the time I showed up and his nickname on the floor was Sarge. And so they kind of just transferred his nickname to me because he left and I showed up at about the same time. Well, it's, you know, better, <laughs> better, better to inherit the name than yeah. uh, than, than than the alternative, I guess. OK, so yeah, Sarge- we had a, and, and just to add, and yeah. when we when I left in 2016, we had a guy that start was starting who had just come home from from uh, Afghanistan. And so I gave him the nickname. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, um, before we get out of here, I, I'm just gonna, uh, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity to share any closing thoughts, but I am gonna tell listeners that you are sitting in for Doug Cast tomorrow at the Daily Diary. That's gonna be on Wednesday, May 10th. And I set you up rather nicely when I sat in yesterday so you could talk all about the Consumer Price Index. Oh, I know. Like, how how lucky is it to be sitting in for Doug Cash on the day the CPI comes out? I mean, we we got CPI tomorrow. We got PPI Thursday. I think uh, where's my little notebook? We got the. Uh, well, you guys can't see it because this is on a podcast. Wow, that is that is see an old school notebook. I might yeah, add. I got, I, I got about a million of them. So tomorrow we have we have Disney after the bell tomorrow. We got yep. Roblox in the morning with Wendy's. We got. Uh, Larry, you and Disney in the afternoon. Those are the ones I'm watching. I'm long Disney, by the way. Disney has not been a great stock. I mean, it's been it's been coming on of late. It's not fundamentally sound, but it's some you know as far as as, as it should be, I should say. But I love the fact that Iger came back. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that Governor DeSantis picked a fight with a CEO that he thought he could take. Now I'm not I'm putting DeSantis down, but it's such an interesting development that he picked a fight with a CEO that he thought he could push around. And they switch CEOs. So now he's got to fight a guy who's probably a CEO. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, personally, I like Bob Iger. I, I, I like what he's oh, done in the too. past. Um, I, I read his book, which I thought was fantastic. Um, and I would not bet against that guy. Not no, at no, all. Not at all. I would bet in, in his state either. So it's going to be. It's going to be uh, it's going to be very interesting how this plays out if they can find a way where neither one of them looks bad and they get out of this without you know with with uh, with Disney in good shape. I would love that because I'm a shareholder. Uh, but uh, it's 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 going to be it's going to be interesting how Disney plays out because they really need that streaming business to turn into something profitable. Otherwise, 
Otherwise, what they just do? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I it's you know there there's bigger questions there. In turn, I mean, I I said a long time ago that we were going to see streaming just be a repeat of cable, i.e., as as Springsteen sang, fifty-seven channels, nothing on, and God knows, you know, we've got more than fifty-seven channels uh, on cable today, and they're all there. There's that aspect to it, but there's also how they and other companies are fighting increasingly for advertising dollars. And there's only so much advertising dollars to go around. So it's it, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. But on on the topic of Iger and um, DeSantis, there's a part of me that wants to see them go you know Heartbreak Ridge style into the uh, into the mud, you know where where Clint Eastwood and I, I forget the other actor's name had to kind of duke it out. And of course, Clint Eastwood came out on top. I would love to see that for Bob Iger. <laughs> I, just, I would just like to see how, how it's just interesting from a business, from an economics and from a political standpoint. It's, it's, just, I, it's, it's great theater. Totally agree. I mean, when, when you think the amount of dollars that, you know, the Disney empire pulls into Florida, it's a very interesting fight to pick. Oh, oh no, no, Disney, without Disney, they, they lose a lot of employment. The city of Orlando would have a major problem. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the surroundings. Oh, well, just imagine this. Imagine if Disney had never built out the infrastructure for Disney Plus, but with everyone else building out the infrastructure for their streaming programs, if Disney had gone the route of an arms dealer with their uh, with their content, it probably would have been so lucrative. May, you know, that's yes. But they they similar to Apple, they like to own the consumer experience. I don't know that they would really want to entrust that to somebody else. You know, as, as I once joked a long time ago, uh, Groupon is interesting, but I cannot eat that much Thai food. No, no. <laughs> and speaking of Apple, Apple and Meta are breaking out. Alphabet and Amazon really haven't broken up, but they're both trying. Uh, what do you think there? Do you have thoughts there? So we are long three out of the four big tech stocks, okay? Um, you know, uh, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. So four out of five. Oh, yeah. Actually. Microsoft broke out, broke out too. I forgot to mention. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. So four out of five. You know, Meta has been an interesting one. We we sold it, I mean, much higher when we took over the portfolio uh, originally. And, you know, I look at it from time to time. I just, there, there's some stuff going on there on the privacy front that kind of scares me a little bit. Um, you know, how are they going to continue to monetize? And it's almost the lack of what's next, you know, a, a definable strategy, right? So, it, you know, this time last year was all about the metaverse, not hearing anything about the metaverse anymore. It's all AI. <laughs> so I think in the near term, meta is more of a cost cutting strategy. But as we both know, you don't really cost cut your way to growth. So that's that's the part of the story, excuse me, story that I, I kind of wrestle with. And with Apple, look, we know that they continue to grow the install base. My only concern, at least in the near term, is that there's a lot of hope being put on this uh, headset, which, you know, they've already kind of released that it's going to be a high high price point item. We should expect it to be like the first round of the watch, which was not high volume. So I don't think that there's the catalyst that some folks are looking for to really pop the stock stock higher. I, I think we're gonna have to wait and see um, what some of the newer products in the back half of the year bring, but we'll see. Yeah, Apple's, Apple's gonna become like, like the defense stocks we were speaking of, a slower growth, uh, free cash flow producing, uh, strong balance sheet type stock. The only thing is 
how do they ever stop or slow the repurchase program without damaging the stock? It's uh, a great question. I uh, I don't really know. The um, by the way, talk about timing, huh? In terms of you know upsizing the buyback and uh, upping the dividend, I, I have to yeah. think that they've been hanging on to that you know since the end of last year trying to figure out what the best time to announce that was. Because if you looked at the guidance that they gave, it was good, but it wasn't great. I think people had fears for something much worse. Uh, but yeah. but the, quarter, the quarter going forward, whatever quarter it is, where they announce they're only going to buy $60 billion worth of stock, they're, they're going to sell this thing. Because <laughs> well, they're so, used, well, they're I, so I, used to returning. I'll I'll end my comments on this with Apple, right? There's a lot of comments about um, the pain in the Android ecosystem. We heard that from Skyworks earlier this week. We heard it from Qualcomm last week. Inventories won't be burned off to the end of the year. And there was a little line in the Apple conference call that, no, our production levels are where we want them to be. We're fine. Yeah. Well, Foxconn's doing, look at producing at, I don't know if it's full capacity, but Foxconn has not indicated any kind of slowdown where some of the others have. Yeah, no, 100%. All right, Sarge, fantastic to have you. We will definitely have you back now, now that you've been here once. Uh, before we get out of here, any parting comments, any words of advice? Yeah, just uh, for all you wonderful folks at home and, and elsewhere, uh, just what I, what I tried to tell you in the beginning, okay? Uh, panic points and target prices on everything. Even if, you, even if you're just learning how to do it, this creates a, uh, a clarity. So, so you can make your decisions without any kind of state of emotion getting involved. Because you, you guys all hear me. I'm excitable, right? If I don't, if I don't use some kind of tricks <laughs> into being disciplined, even with my military background, I will, I'll goof up. I'll make little mistakes here and there that, I, that, I, that rookie mistakes, I should call them, because everyone makes mistakes. I do too. But, but, I, but at least they're well thought out decisions. If you have levels set where you will either add, take off, or take a profit. Totally agree. Um, never fall in love with your stocks, charge. Ever, ever, ever. That, that's, exactly. And I failed there with the defense contractors. Well, you know what? You're only, you're only human. All right, sorry. Hey, thank you so much. And we will have you back soon. Take care.